Hello, everyone, and welcome to A Soulful Revolution. I'm Lauren Grubaugh-Thomas, a priest, writer, spouse, and twin mama living in Littleton, Colorado on the traditional homelands of the Arapaho and Cheyenne peoples. On this podcast, I interview people at the intersection of spiritual transformation and social change. My guest today is my dear friend, the Reverend Natano Muller. Natano is a trained elementary school teacher, an ordained Anglican priest, and a social justice activist hailing from Ocean View, a small fishing community outside of Cape Town, South Africa. Natano describes himself as a juggler of books, chalices, and a social life. I love that. And he currently serves as the rector of St. Peter Blue Downs in the Anglican Diocese of False Bay and is diocesan canon for young people. Natano, it's so good to have you on the podcast today. Thanks so much, Lauren. Thanks for having me. I want to begin by asking you to share what it means to you to be a soulful revolutionary, somebody who lives at this intersection of spiritual transformation and social change. Thanks. Thank you so much, Lauren. I mean, it's an absolute honor to just share the space with you. Thank you so much for the work that you do. I mean, even via this podcast, I know that this is such a life-giving space to so many people. And so thank you for inviting me to be a part of it. Um, I've never actually described myself as a revolutionary, number one, and number two, to be a soulful revolutionary. When I reflect on on the question, I, I think, for me at least, it's to do the work of transformation but from an embodied space, from a, mm. from a space of having done a lot of the reconciliation work in myself um, before I can, you know, bring about any kind of social change or transformation around me. For me, at least, I consider myself a soulful revolutionary from the perspective that I myself have undergone immense transformation through, you know, spiritual practices like reflection and contemplation and prayerfulness that allows me or that informs the work that I do in my community. That's beautiful. Would you share a little bit about the context that you're coming from, about your community and, and how that has shaped who you are? Absolutely. Um, I, as, I mean, as you so beautifully put it in my, in my, in the introduction, um, I work uh, sort of on the outskirts of the city of Cape Town, which you and I'm sure many of your of your listeners would be familiar with the historical context in which uh, we find ourselves in South Africa. I work at a, in a part of Cape Town called the Cape Flats, which is sort of really just a sort of flat ground between Table Mountain and the Hottentots Holland Mountains uh, to the north. And the, the area that we that that is now inhabited by people of color um, as a result of the displacement of of POCs uh, during the apartheid regime, and so uh, people of color were, were literally taken from their homes and placed in particular areas um, on the outskirts of the city and sort of the fancier parts of the city of Cape Town. Uh, the leafy suburbs were obviously um, sort of earmarked for, for white occupation. And so the community I currently find myself in, which is in the Blue Downs area, a small called Plain Flay, um, very, very populated, densely populated area um, below sort of the bread, bread line in terms of income, um, uh, very p- poverty-stricken. Uh, we have we have more than half of our population is, is, is children. And so mm. we, we have immense social challenges in 
in in in the in the area where our country serve. Um, and so I grew up in a in a context very very similar to that. And so I'm able to, as I said, uh, work in the context that I currently work in from an embodied space because I've loved the experiences of the people I now minister to, and mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 a, a big part of 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 what my ministry currently um, uh, composes of or comprises of is is ministry to to people who are absolutely destitute, people who have no idea where their next meal is is going to come from, people who are struggling to get their children into schools because our schools are overpopulated, um, uh, elderly persons who are trying to access uh, social government grants um, and 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 the like, and so a lot of a lot of what my ministry looks like is is I don't want to call it outreach because it's not that it's exa- it's it's ministry it's it's living alongside the people and helping them regain a sense of their dignity which was lost um, mm. historically because of the apartheid regime um, because of colonialism and now I think because of the corrupt systems that currently are in place in our in our country, um, where government officials are just looting public funds, and so what we now call the triple threat here in in South Africa, that of colonialism, um, apartheid, and state capture, um, we are to, us as ministers have to help our people navigate their livelihoods through all of that. I wonder if you could speak more about the ways in which the vestiges of apartheid are still present and and what that looks like in terms of your ministry you know you mentioned that there's still this very segregated reality in terms of people living people of color living in parts of cape town that were where folks were separated to by apartheid because i think oftentimes when we talk about revolution when we talk about nonviolent struggle and struggles like the movement to to end apartheid, we often think about, well, now the system is changed, but of course the vestiges of these systems continue to be present. And I'm thinking specifically of um, Ruby Sales, um, an elder of the civil rights movement, who I heard speak a number of years ago about the fact that the reason that we're seeing things in in my country, in the United States, um, continue to be stripped away in terms of, of of rights that were gained during the civil rights movement. So things like the Voting Rights Act that was really essential in terms of ensuring um, equity for Black Americans. Um, those those rights have been stripped away. And she said that that is largely because people's hearts didn't change. There wasn't the spiritual transformation that ensured um, the social transformation being sustainable. So I'm curious, in your context, from your perspective, what are the ways in which the social change and the spiritual transformation that were so longed for and hoped for 20, 30 years ago, um, and to some extent were achieved, how how are you continuing to see like the tendrils and the vestiges of, of these systems play out maybe in more subtle ways or in more pernicious ways? For many people, in many people of color in South Africa, as a result of colonial occupation, as a result of apartheid, people's dignities has, has been stripped away from them. You know, my, my ancestors were given other names. My, my, but my own heritage stems from Sierra Leone and West Africa. Um, and my, my ancestors were brought here on, on naval ships, royal naval ships from the United Kingdom. When they arrived there, they were given other names, literally given other names according to the month that they arrived according to, you know, features on their faces, on their bodies, 
Um, and so they were they were absolutely stripped of their basic human dignity. Something as 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 simple yet profound as as the example I just mentioned continues to to find its way into the livelihoods of the people today in our in the communities that I that that we serve by virtue of the fact that they had their dignity stripped away and nowhere along the line was that ever given back or re- reinforced or affirmed. Um, other things began to to give them identity, um, mm. and so we've seen we've seen particularly on the Cape Flats where, where I currently work in love the rise of gangsterism, and so mm. so a, a gang is able to tell you who you are if you don't know who you are. Drug lords are able to hold our young people hostage because it is it is that particular thing that gives me my identity, and so a, a big part of of how how I see the revolution, the soulful revolution panning out, um, not only where I can define myself, but I, I would imagine globally, is to is to affirm the Imago Dei, the image of God in every individual that passes through the doors of my parish church. Um, that is that's that's a quite a, I mean that's, that's quite simple simply put, but it's quite an enormous task. Um, yeah. and it's quite a, an exhaustive task. Um, but but they, they are, it's not impossible, and so so how I find myself addressing something something as massive as identity is to is to use the tools that are at my disposal, like the liturgy that people mm-hmm. are drawn to Sunday after Sunday, that holds our people when they go through immense struggle and challenge, is to is to remind them through every spoken and sung word, every prayer prayed, that they are a beloved child of God and and that's that's I believe the, the core of why I do what I do um, mm. because I've done the internal work I've done the the reconciliation and continue to do the work in terms of reminding myself so that it is from an embodied point of view that I say yeah I am a black queer young man and and I, I believe with every fiber of my being that God embraces me as I am Mm, you need to know yes. this. You need to know. You need to share in this, and you need to tell others also. And so, so in in very in very subtle ways, um, through through things like a, the example of the liturgy, through, through the youth programs that we run at our church, through the through the feeding schemes, through the uh, outreach projects, through the visitors' um, ministry uh, of, of of people going to going to visit the elderly and the sick and the bereaved at home. The my my words to those ministers are when you walk into that house, the first thing you do is to remind everybody in that space that they are loved as they are, where they are, and they are seen by God. And that and that there's there's so much more to us than our current circumstances. And and just the power of language, again in my context, we had languages enforced on us by colonial powers, by the apartheid regime. Uh, laws were passed that said you will learn in Afrikaans, which was not mm. the native language of my people. In terms of reclaiming reclaiming our identity through the use of our own languages mm. and, and incorporating that in the life of the church, through our worship, through our singing, through our programs, just making sure that people, we even have, we have a, a public holiday in southern Af- in South Africa, um, called Heritage Day, and mm. uh, it's on this particular Sunday that we try, as far as we possibly can, to do 
you know, our, 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 our liturgies in the vernaculars from beginning to end. To That's just beautiful. remind people, you know, that we are seen, we are part of the kingdom of God. We are part of the work of, of, of the spirit of God. We don't, the minute we walk into this place, because it's an Anglican church, suddenly become the Queen's church, um, or now, of course, right. the King's church. Um, <laughs> um, we, we are an embodied people, and so we bring all of who we are when we worship God. We bring all of who we are to that space. Um, mm. Mm. You've referred a couple of times to the inner work that you have done around your own dignity and your own belovedness, see, yes. being able to see yourself as God sees you. And I'd love to hear you share more about about that. As as what what are the practices that have sustained you? What are the stories that you tell yourself now? How are those different than the stories that you told yourself when you were young? Yeah, I I I have a particular memory that just you know uh, popped popped in my mind now as you asked the question of the first time I came out as a as a as a gay man. Um, I was in my I think it was my first year at university. Um, and I remember uh, attending a service uh, at my local parish, and this the reading that morning had to do with Abraham having all these children, uh, you know, as they are sea sand grains on the on on the beach and and all of that. And I went home, and I, as every uh, good uh, Anglican son would go home and go and tell his mother what he had encountered at the at the church service. Um, I told my my mother what the readings were about and I shared with her, you know, this, this, this particular passage and she, she, I remember she was busy sort of, I think Sunday lunch or something. And she was, and she had a sort of a, quite a massive knife in her hand. She was busy sort of peeling the table. <laughs> and uh, her back was to me. I was standing in the door of the kitchen and she asks me, so are you going to have children? Are you mm. going to give grandchildren? And there was a, sort of this long, dramatic pause. It felt like the longest, probably 30 seconds of my life. Mm. And I said, maybe not, Mom. Maybe not. And I could hear her. I, I don't know if she picked up the knife or she put it down. <laughs> that was quite a, quite a violent <laughs> moment there in my imagination. And she turned it down. And to my surprise, she had put down the, you know, the, the knife that she was using to cut the potatoes, the peeled potatoes. And she looked at me and she said, Why? And I said, Mom, I'm, I'm gay. Obviously not knowing, you know, um, what the, the possibilities that science has brought us now. Of course, at that stage, I wasn't, wasn't sure. And she, she said to me, and I still love you. And she walked up to me oh. and she embraced me. And we cried for like a solid 10 to 15 minutes or something. And we just sort of sobbed in each other's arms. That was not the response I was, I was expecting mm -hmm. from her. Um, because uh, I certainly wasn't planning in my mind um, to come out to her at that stage, possibly never even. But that was a definitive moment for me because I'm convinced that that particular moment was a glimpse of, of God's love for me. Yes. Um, I, I, just a glimpse, right? Just an absolute, but just a small glimpse of the kind of unconditional love that I have always enjoyed um, from, from my family, um, from my church community, my home, my home parish, uh, where I grew up, where I was shaped and molded, where my vocation mm -hmm. I was shaped and molded. Um, and, and obviously in my teenage, teenage years um, and into, into early adulthood, I had some, asked myself some serious questions about, you know, so if this is who I am, 
but the Bible says A, B, C, and D. How how does this how does this work? And I think God has been absolutely gracious in putting people on my path that opened my mind to seeing that Jesus is the blueprint. You know that everything mm. everything points to the unconditional, revolutionary, radical love and welcome that is embodied in the person of Jesus. And after I've, obviously through my own theological studies, through my own experiences of people, and just through listening to the stories of other queer clergy, people who were, who were my mentors, uh, people who were my friends who were saying, listen, you know, um, you, you are loved and embraced as you are. And out of that, I believe that I was called to a ministry of, can we call it? I, I know Paul calls this the Ministry of Reconciliation. Exactly that, to help, to help, to come alongside, to walk with people who are doing, who are struggling to, to make sense of, you know, this is who I am. This is what, you know, what we've been taught. Um, how does this make sense? And to help people. So I've done a considerable amount of deconstruction as part of my own faith practice, as part of my own faith formation, in order to piece back together what was life-giving and helpful for me. Um, mm. And so, and, and I think that's, someone asked me the other day, you know, so why ministry? Why, why you could have gone and made money, you could have been a businessman, you could have pursued a career in education. And I said, all those things are good and well, but I, I felt particularly called to this kind of work because I knew for the fact that I needed to be a part of, of just the expansion of the kingdom of God, right? The expansion of of welcome, of embrace, of ensuring that everybody knows they have a place around the table, and that we are not all free until we are all free. Um, Amen. In, in every aspect of of the word freedom, and so mm. so yeah, so so that's that's possibly some of the practices, it's some of the definitive moments that have helped me, uh, you know, has shaped me to to, to be where I am. Mm. Thank you for sharing. I'm struck by the language that you used of being seen in that moment by your mother and you use similar language and you talked about interacting with members of your church, being able to yeah. see people and affirm their dignity and how powerful it is to be seen as our true selves beyond yeah. any stereotypes, beyond any boxes or labels that society puts on us to see the essential goodness, the, orig yes. the original goodness and belovedness. Yes. Yes. And uh, as you say, the image of God that each of us carries. And that is such rigorous spiritual work. Absolutely. Every single day. <laughs> like, Absolutely. It's, it's, it can be so challenging. I think especially yeah. for myself, right? Yes. To affirm the Imago Dei in oneself. Yes. That has at least been my experience can be the hardest thing. Because um, I can be so hard on myself. And so to have those, to hold on to those memories where people have truly seen us and affirmed us is such a gift. And then to share that gift mm. with others, yeah. because so, so many people don't have those experiences, especially in their own families exactly. of having somebody who sees them and, and get, who gives them a glimpse of what it is to yes. be seen yes. by God. Mm -hmm. That's just mm -hmm. beautiful. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder what, what is a day in the life of a juggler of books, chalices, and social life look like? <laughs> good question. Good question. Um, I, I, um, 
<laughs> so that's a really good question. I, I <laughs> myself, I I had a young a young person come to me uh, as part of his sort of I think it's like it's sort of a eleventh grade project or something. He needs to shadow someone, you know, uh, and he decided to shadow his priest. And I thought, mm. oh my word, my day is the most uneventful <laughs> thing ever. Um, <laughs> so I'll have to kind of fabricate things <laughs> in order to make your day exciting. <laughs> None of my days, I think, are the same um, in many ways. I mean, I think there's a routine to it, but I think none of none of them are, are, are ever the same. I, I'm my day starts out with me just being present, um, and whether that's through sort of prayer practices, or whether that's just me standing on my front porch with a cup of coffee in my hand and kind of just embracing the day, whether it's rain or sunshine. Um, I, I've come to learn. That uh, prayer takes on so many forms. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I, I think uh, we've been so indoctrinated to think that God only listens to us when we are on our knees, um, you know, s- reciting things that we were taught at seminary or wherever. Um, I, I've I've come to again as a as a result of that that soulful work. Um, I've come to realize that you know God is just God is God, and you know is is all in all, I think Paul says. Um, and so so my day starts with, you know, a bit of reflection. I try to be very disciplined about that, whether it's sitting in silence or just listening to music, or but trying to be very present to myself. Um, I don't live too far from, from my, my parish church, where the office is also based. And so my day always starts with sort of just, you know, checking in at the office. What does my day look like? I usually know a day in advance. Um, but the parish administrator would kind of give me direction in terms of what the rest of the day looks like. Most of it looks uh, like me pushing paper in the morning, um, either checking in on you know bulletins or administrative tasks. Um, I, I I try to get in one or two home visits every single day. That, that, that's sort of a, my own sort wow. of ministerial obligation to myself, and and not because I want to be seen as the priest who visits people. But there's, there's such power in stories and storytelling, mm, just mm. listening to where people are. And that, I think, informs every aspect of my ministry in terms of the program, from the programs we run at the church to the sermons preached on a Sunday. Um, and so, so just to come alongside people and to find out where they are um, mm. and, and what kind of support can be offered if it's humanly possible. Um, and so I do one or two of those. And I try not to over exert myself that's why i say one or two i will not do you know like 12 or 15 Um, (laughs) one or two just as a as a a practice for myself um i would usually find my afternoons free and so i'd go home um i love afternoon naps it's my thing um i'd I'd eat something take an afternoon naps and 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 in the evening which is usually again another sort of administrative thing i'd either have appointments with people or meetings uh, parish council meetings or you know some kind of administrative, or meeting with some kind of group in the church because we have quite a quite a number of, of organizations um, in the in the parish that are all vying for the rector's attention. Sure. Um, so, so most days look like that, and my my day would start at about um, I, I wake up at about six in the morning. My my work day starts at about nine, um, and it ends at about possibly nine in the evening. Um, mm-hmm. most days I have a, I have a Sabbath um, which is on my which is on a Monday and I'm, I've also learned over the years to be quite disciplined about it so 
I really don't do anything on my on my off days. I've I've been reading a book by Beatrice Bruteau, who's a contemplative, it's called Radical Optimism, Practical Spirituality in a Chaotic World or something of that effect. And she she speaks about Sabbath. The first uh, chapter is all about that space of yeah. rest and being and being still. Mm-hmm. And there's something that really struck me in how she describes Sabbath as like the un- she, de- she describes it as the underlying reality of the world that this that when we take this space whether it's an entire day or that moment where you take a cup of coffee and you go out on the porch and you welcome the day yeah. that those are moments of recognizing that the the, the we are held that the yes. world is sustained um, not by yeah. our yeah. frenzied <laughs> labor yes. but yes. by the God who Absolutely. made and sustains us breath by breath by breath. I remember encountering uh, some of some of some of her writings, um, but I, I mean that's such an important such an important point. Also, because I mean the world in which we live teaches us that you know productivity is key, and so we need to run from the one thing to the other um, in order to produce. And so I mean, particularly I mean even as clergy persons, we we want to ensure that the bills are paid, so certainly money needs to come in in order to go back out. I don't want to use the, the language of pessimism, but I, I, I've resigned myself to the fact that this is God's church. You know, I am mm-hmm. certainly only a part of this immense, enormous mechanism that, that God is using to bring about transformation in the world. And it's, it's not me. You know, this thing, the savior complex, the, the messiah complex, rather, that I think many clergy persons fall into um, is this thing about I need to ensure that things need to get done. I mean, obviously, we need to plan and we need to, you know, we need to be visionary leaders. But I mean, we we don't need to be the Messiah. And I, I had to learn that the hard way. I mean, I suffered from a bit of a, a mental health um, a challenge um, where I, I I was completely knocked out. My, the wind was knocked out of my sails. Mm. And it, it took a moment, that particular moment, in order for me to realize that I'm only a piece of you know, a much bigger plan, a much bigger picture, a much bigger um, mechanism at work. And and that has been, um, that moment was helpful. Being ill was not helpful. But yeah. that particular moment was was, was helpful um, uh, because it, it, it called me back to myself. It called mm. me, it was my body calling me back to myself. Um, mm. And I was so appreciative of that um, because I probably would have just allowed myself further into the ground. Yeah. Yeah, I resonate with that. I mean, that was my experience when I had a couple of pulmonary embolisms a few years yeah. ago, yeah. where I I was just pushing myself, pushing myself, and realized I have to care for my body. I only get one, and yes. that this is a gift. This is a gift. And so, what what am I going to do to tend to my body and to to take those those places of Sabbath, recognizing that that is the underlying reality of all that it is, is this world of that is, that is held, that is sustained by God. Thomas Merton talks about the, the frenzied activity of the activist being itself a form of violence. Yes. Yes. Which I have to come back to again and again, because that is my tendency, right. (laughs) It's to just exert, exert myself and push myself and end up contributing to the, the constant, disarray and chaos and fragmentation of the world by my own anxiety. Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. 
And so I, I hear that that mental health piece being so important in your journey. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm reminded I, I had on the podcast a couple months ago, um, my friend Andre Henry, who in his music and in his writing, he talks a lot about mental health and he has this yes. song called Soft, which is about as as a man, the challenge of being vulnerable and and the kind of pushback in our society that men in particular receive when they express vulnerability. And so I'm curious if you could speak more about, about that. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned early on, you know, being a black queer man in the spaces that you inhabit. And so what does it mean as a black queer man in South Africa to be someone who models that kind of softness and vulnerability and, and caring for yourself and for the one body that God has given you? Absolutely. You know, it's it's been it's been a it's been a challenge. It really has been a challenge. Um, being, as I said, I mean, embodiment is is so important to me. Um, and and I another reason um, for for me entering into ministry was 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 to, to for lack of a better word, you know, to give the church a more human face because all the images of the the clergy persons, um, you know, in the church here in Southern Africa were were white, were old, were male, <laughs> um, and and so here comes this, you know, black, younger, queer body, um, and, and 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 just just to take up space in itself is revolutionary. I think in my context, yes, yes, so to just occupy space is already sort of shaking the foundations of. The patriarchal nonsense that has been in place here for centuries, um, and that is confounded by, you know, by by cultural systems, by 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 um, um, tribal and ethnic, you know, sort of baggage. I think that has come um, with, with all of that, and and so and so to be to be a, a vulnerable body in a in a in a space that requires you to be this hard body, you know. Is, 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 a, is a man is supposed to embody a particular kind of masculinity um, and so and here I come with my nails painted occasionally or um, you know rocking my pride stole or whatever the case mm-hmm. um, um, just just sends shockwaves to the very core of of, of, of patriarchy in in the spaces mm-hmm. um, that I that I occupy um, it's been difficult Lauren to answer your question it has been difficult um, but I've I've made sure, and that's why my project is part of the part of the Trinity Leadership um, um, course or program is to, is to create spaces where where queer gender non-conforming bodies within Anglican spaces can mm. be safe, can gather, can share, can tell stories, can offer support to one another. Um, and I, I, I mean, I've I've made a considerable amount of backlash because of it. Wow. Um, because what you know, what are you doing? What what agenda? What Western agenda are you mm. kind of impose on this African country? Um, mm. And and I, I I reminded one of the people who 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 was vehemently against you know in opposition to to this initiative, and I said, um, quoting quoting from um, Desmond Tutu's book Made for Goodness, you know, was was saying that uh, where Desmond and his daughter says. Um, that we are inherently good, you know. We've been programmed to believe in this thing called original sin, um, you know. But but 
we we need to, to to constantly remind ourselves that we we were when God created according to ancient narratives, um, He looked at us and said that we were good, and and mm. and, and to just just to affirm that in people, to affirm that in every individual, um, gay, straight, black, white, whatever the case may be, is is what we are called to do. Is what I believe I'm called to do, and just through my very presence. Um, in the church, but even outside of the church, even in my family, um, mm-hmm. where I, I've made a considerable amount of of, of, of opposition, um, and so I'm, I'm I protect my peace for it. To be quite honest, I yeah. I, I uh, embrace uh, opportunities with family members, particularly who want to be around me, who affirm me, who love me, who see me, and those who don't, they simply don't. And 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 I've, I've really made peace. So that even even in, in the in the parish where I serve, those who um, are not affirming have left and gone elsewhere. And in the beginning, I struggled with that because I'm supposed to keep all things together. I'm supposed to be the one, you know, ensuring that people stay. People leaving isn't a good sign, is it? Mm. Uh, but, but again, having having you know, I I only have control over how I feel, how I receive, what other people do with how I present myself in spaces that's work for them to do um, and, and that was a that was a, a hard thing to deal with because uh, being such a I consider myself a bit of a perfectionist I, I want I want to control the narrative in people's minds of me and about me and so I had to seriously let go of that <laughs> I had to seriously let go of that entire notion of saying you know I, I cannot be the one wanting to regulate how people see me how they perceive me that's that's work for them to do, but I need to ensure that I'm completely at ease and embraced in and of myself. Um, mm. What I think is, it's, it's, is that uh, Richard Rowe speaks about seeing your true self, um, yeah. and so, so yeah, that that that's as you said, it's the exhaustive work of a of of a social soulful revolutionary having to constantly ensure that you see yourself yeah. um, first and foremost, and and help others see themselves. Mm. I wonder about what that means when people embody their true selves at scale. (laughs) And I'm thinking specifically about, so we're recording this episode on January 12th, which is the second day of South Africa making a case against Israel committing genocide against Palestinians at the International Court of Justice at The Hague. And so I find myself wondering, as folks from your context from South Africa um, are are representing a case for justice, for humanity, for um, the freedom of all people. Um, how that, how you see that having emerged from the work that 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 South Africans and particularly Black South Africans yes. Yes. have done for decades <laughs> mm-hmm. to be able to contend for justice in in your context like what does it look like for the work that you're describing on an individual level to become not perfectly it's not perfectly done at the individual level or the corporate level the collective level um but what does it look like for that work to extend widely into in in order to bear witness to what it means to be people who live as our true selves in freedom and dignity with love yeah yeah you know i'll our ethos as African people is 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 grounded fundamentally 
in in um, in Ubuntu, right? In this concept of I am because you are, and mm. and so uh, our our struggle for freedom is so intertwined with the struggles of other persons, um, both on the continent but also globally. Um, we've been dealing sort of in-house with the struggle of, oh, we've got so much going on in South Africa. Where do we find the time to still go and represent, you know, another displaced group of people um, mm -hmm. at the International Court of Justice? And it's exactly that. It's another group of displaced people. Yeah. They, and I think it was Nelson Mandela who said, South Africa will never be free until the people of Palestine are free, until all That's people right. are free. Um, and so the, the entire concept of Ubuntu has us completely interdependent on one another. And, and our leaders were saying how and who is going to speak for those who cannot speak, those who have no voice, those who are, are intentionally being ostracized and overlooked um, and occupied. And, and I mean, I, I can say with absolute confidence, I'm, I mean, I'm very proud of what my, what my country has done um, and are doing. Um, however, small or great it's perceived to be um, because I, I mean we've heard other world leaders saying oh the, the case you know should just be dismissed it has absolutely no merit um, and the mere fact that that those voices are given space and time and even a microphone is, yeah. is, is sad and shameful that in 2024 we still have that kind of rhetoric um, where, where another sovereign state can can just dismiss another group of people. That's it. I mean, is that not the fundamental tenets of colonial thinking, of, of, of patriarchy, of having to think that your life values more than someone else's? And so, and so for us as South African people, for us as South African Christians, um, we, 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 are, we, are, we are absolutely convinced that and convicted that our cause is a just one and someone needs to make a noise. Someone needs to, if we can, if we have to stand on our heads and do it, we will do it. Um, because the people of Palestine uh, were, were there for us during our struggle um, against the apartheid regime. And, but not only because it's a game of loyalties, it certainly isn't. It's, it's, it's a country or a people seeing another group of people, having their, their rights, their dignity, as I earlier on alluded to, absolutely stripped away. Those are all we see as numbers on a screen. We don't even see names. Um, but that, that those, are, those, are, those are children with names. Those are men and women. With their, those are sons and daughters. Those are husbands and wives. And we cannot continue silent. It, it, it's just, it, I, you know, words fail me in in even thinking about how, in conceiving how it is that we've been quiet for so long, um, but something is being done now, and, and I, I just hope it's enough. Um, mm. at least to, mm. to, to, if, if, if anything, the atrocities are being held up to the light now. You know, mm. where it's, it's come out, it's, it's out there, um, and so now, whether it is a case, a good or bad case being made on either end, it's it's out there, and and I'm I mean I pray that you know that, that justice and righteousness will cover the the face of the earth as waters cover the sea. Truly, um, mm. thank you. I I want to close by lifting up a word that I just heard you use, which is hope, mm. and 
to ask you to share what are the greatest challenges that you face in holding on to hope and then what helps you to nurture hope what helps you to to cling on to hope as a life raft through the the chaotic seas of of life and and in our worlds what what is empowering you to do that work thank thank you lord for that um because i i truly believe in at the core of my being that it is it is hope that keeps me doing what i do um even if it is just a little bit in a small little town that no one knows on the outskirts of Cape Town, um, I, I believe that it is hope that keeps me coming back um, to do what I do. And and I think I pointed this out to you, you know, because since you're asking, what is it that that keeps me hopeful? Um, it's 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 that one or two visits that I alluded to in my day, you know, when I go to sit at the home of a young man who has been stabbed in his neck. Mm. Um, and was on life support for three weeks. And I get to sit next to him and he struggles to utter through, you know, the, the trachea implant that he has in his neck. And all he can say is, thank you, Reverend, for coming. That gives me the hope to mm. want to keep going on, you know, for me to want to keep showing up when other people would have completely written him off because he was involved in gang violence, whatever the case may be. I'm, I'm highlighting just that one example because there are so many others like that um, where, 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 where all hope is gone to the visible eye. All hope is gone. And here I walk into a home and I'm warmly welcomed by a mother, a single mother, who, who points me to his bedroom because he's unable to walk to the, to the lounge um, and says and whispers to him, you know, the, the priest is here. And he mm. smiles um, because the last time I saw him, was to was to say prayers because I thought he was going to die, mm -hmm. um, and and that's that's the kind of stories that that keeps me waking up in the morning and saying, God, I have no idea what this day holds for me, but I know that you are already there, and so hold me in those moments of of tenderness of vulnerability, um, hold me in those moments when I'm gonna be needed to say words that are beyond my own wisdom. I mean, that's just one example of, of what I what I think keeps me hopeful in that that young man could on Christmas Day come to our Christmas service for the first time in, in six months and he could come up and he could say to me, and he said, you know, sort of at, when he came to receive communion, Holy Communion, he just smiled and I kind of just crossed him in his hands as he cupped his hands. I kind of just, you know, held him. For a moment, just for a moment, and that I think that that moment solidified the importance of of presence, yeah. the importance of of being. Of I mean, I didn't certainly didn't have the words to speak when I saw him, but I think just being a, a presence and him being present to me was sort of ah, brother. You thought you were struggling, come mm. on. Um, um, and so so that that keeps me hopeful. Just listening to the stories of resilient people, people who, who, as I said, um, to the, to the naked eye would, would, would be perceived as being, having lost all hope, but the story is not over. Hmm. Amen. Thank you so much, Natano, for being on the podcast today. It's been, this conversation has been such a gift. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you so much. It's always good just being in your space. Thank you so much. You too, my friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode of a Soulful Revolution podcast. You'll find the whole archive of past episodes and my weekly essays at A Soulful Revolution on Substack. If A Soulful Revolution makes a difference in your life, let me know by writing a review or becoming a paid subscriber. Your solidarity makes this whole project possible. Thank you. Until next time, Soulful Revolutionaries. Thank you.